Welcome to the 10 Years Out podcast, stories from my queer community. I'm your host, Sam, and my pronouns are she, her. I identify as queer. And my lovely guest today, who I haven't seen in so long, is my dear friend, Miles Markham. Hi, Miles. Hello. It's great to be here thank you so much for joining me and getting your wired headphones <laughs> of course of course went into the archive to find them had to hit up some friends <laughs> how many friends did We're you grateful. have to hit up to get some wired headphones just two. Oh, nice my my second ask had them right right there awesome ready for me good job <laughs> okay so preliminary questions what are your pronouns how do you identify? How long have you been out? My pronouns are he, him, or they, them. I don't have a preference. You don't need to use one more than the other or both of them, but just, you know, those are them. Those are the ones. As far as like identities go, I guess, um, I also identify as queer and I am transgender. I would also use the word transmasculine to describe myself. I do identify as non-binary. And a part of that for me is, uh, and I'll talk a little bit more about this in a bit, but um, how I was able to kind of begin my journey home to myself was deeply connected uh, to auto-ethnographic work I did. And so through specifically studying and learning more about my native Hawaiian uh, lineage, I learned about a tradition within Hawaiian um, gender systems called mahu, which means middle. Mm. And so that, you know, in the right space is also something I would use to describe myself. But in terms of like the Western kind of discourse around gender identity and expression to me, um, non-binary is kind of the closest way um, to talk about that um, with communities who aren't as familiar with Pacifica or, you know, Native Hawaiian, you know, specific, right. uh, you know, concepts and traditions. So, yeah, yeah queer, trans mask, non-binary or mahu, if, uh, you know, you can appreciate it. That's cool. I appreciate it. Thank you. And how long have you been out? Mm, um, <laughs> my short answer is that's a complicated question. Uh -huh. I um, came out uh, to religious leaders, to my family, and to close friends as someone who, quote unquote, struggled with same-sex attraction and gender confusion in 2004 when I was 15. I then spent the next seven years uh, in uh, different forms of conversion therapy and trying to pray the gay away, uh, but was eventually able to kind of re-come out as uh, lesbian or gay or queer in 2013 uh, when I, yes, was on the precipice of being 23. Um, but then, um, 
part B uh, started to unfold in 2018 when I was able to start sharing with people that I knew I was trans and that um, I wanted them to use he, they pronouns for me, and I'd be changing my name to Miles. So I was 27 uh, when that happened. And here we are today, still yeah. going and growing with that. Yep. Yep. Yeah. So Miles and I met at GCN um, my first year out of the closet. I, mean, I don't even know if it was a year out. Um, and Miles was with a group of his friends who I just thought looked so cool. I was like, these are the cool kids at the conference. <laughs> Rackus is probably <laughs> a good word to describe that posse. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you all had stuff to say. You were all very good friends with each other. So you were very comfortable with each other. And somehow I kind of got adopted for at least the conference into the group and it was it was super fun but yeah so we've yes. known each other for yes through, for 10 years the too. snow apocalypse yeah <laughs> yeah yeah what what a time for our worlds to have collided yeah for real okay so um what do we need to know about your story before we talk about what you've learned since coming out part a or part b <laughs> Ooh. Um, and some of that you've, you've touched I, on with, I think, with your... Yeah, yeah. Yeah. But anything else you want to add? Yes. Yeah, I think we hit kind of the major chronological milestones with the coming out question. Um, but maybe to just kind of fill in some more of the gaps, you know, that exist in that timeline. Um, I'll, I'll share that I was born and raised in North... Florida, first the East Coast and then the West Coast, which for folks who are not familiar, those are the parts of Florida that are still considered the Deep South. And that is culturally true, that's politically true, that's religiously true. And so for me, um, I think a lot of how I kind of wound up in that conversion therapy scenario, the seven-year scenario I mm -hmm. mentioned was... I just had very few examples of what a life could look like for, for somebody like myself, somebody mixed race, somebody queer, somebody trans. I, I was at kind of a loss for resources. And even with, um, you know, the 90s and the 2000s, like uh, acceptance for LGBTQ people increasing, um, those narratives did not make their way to me. And so a lot of what I was hearing at school and certainly at church was very negative and encouraged me to change, you know, encouraged me to uh, quote unquote, pursue healing and um, to lose myself, you know, in order to find Christ. And so a lot of my adolescence and early young adulthood was uh, shaped by this idea that the way to love God and to love other people um, was to erase me, was to empty me, was to deny me. And eventually I just began my own research, you know, pursuit around some of those like theological paradigms. I wanted to understand the language. I wanted to understand 
are like sacred text and why it said what it said and um, if those things, how I'd been taught, you know, were true, what was the rest of my life going to look like? And it was through that exploration that um, the house of cards kind of started to fall. And I just began to meet enough people who were more like me and hear kind of similar threads of psychological and religious violence kind of playing out in their life around uh, sexual orientation, gender identity, and race to where it was no longer morally kind of conscionable for me to keep believing what I believed. I'd, I'd seen the damage. It was too clear. And it was no longer an acceptable possibility for myself morally. And I got out um, is the short version of that story. <laughs> um, very quickly transitioned into LGBTQ advocacy yep. and education and um, really began to, to form, you know, I guess what we'd call chosen family and um, deep like relationships with other uh, queer and trans elders specifically. And it was through those connections um, that I began to be really grounded um, in at least a queer identity. And essentially since that point, I've been in some form of LGBTQ uh, advocacy, organizing, or education. A lot of that was in religious spaces um, because those experiences were not all bad. Mm -hmm. um, and I did did believe um, and still do believe that there's a big opportunity for reforming um, the teachings that you know have historically harmed us and eventually kind of got out of that and into broader uh, support services for queer and trans people. And that's, you know, in a lot of different ways still what I am doing today. Um, but I don't know, I guess um, maybe the only other piece I'll add to that is that I've, I've moved around a lot. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so I was based in the South um, for years and years, even, you know, as I was able to come out and start accepting and learning to love myself, I was still doing that in Atlanta, Georgia, but I moved to Los Angeles in 2021, mostly for the ocean and proximity to Hawaii, but uh, I also do a little bit of documentary film work. And so um, this has been much more conducive uh, to that part of my professional portfolio. That's so cool. I'm out here now and fully enjoying uh, the, the kinds of resources that exist here for queer and trans people. That's been a huge add value to my yeah. life. Nice. All right. So what have you learned since coming out? Oh, Sam, what have I learned? <laughs> oh, um, I, so this is interesting because I do think that this applies to everybody. It's not just a queer and trans thing, um, but I have learned so much about the importance and the value of directly communicating in relationships. Mm -hmm. oh. And I say that first because uh, for my childhood, um, my family was passive communicators. And so in the South, I think it also sort of like holds a, a bit of that um, way of interacting with each other where 
you say one thing, you kind of mean another. Bless your heart. Or, yeah, um, I some people think this is hypocrisy, but I actually think sometimes it is that. Um, other times, it really is just passively communicating. You uh, do have a kind of second or a third meaning to everything you're saying. You bring expectations, you know, to the table around what it means, for example, to like offer hospitality, mm. when and where and how you should do that and who is responsible for taking care of it. Although so much is passively communicated and expected. And I did not realize how true that was for me until um, probably the last five or six years, how um, much of a skill direct communication mm. is. And yet, I think there are ways that specifically around queer and transness, I had to learn that. So for example, um, I've been in almost every job I've had, um, some kind of teacher around um, LGBTQ-ness and the Bible, LGBTQ-ness and Christian theology, LGBTQ-ness and pastoral care. And... um, it became really easy for people to start treating me as a resource mm-hmm. within of itself. I can't tell you for years, people like all day, every day, texting me, emailing me, asking me questions about Christianity, about queerness, about uh, transness, about how to deal with like this specific issue. I was just constantly consulting right. on friends, family, connections, professional, personal um you know, means, and it was exhausting. It was unsustainable. And yet I felt so responsible for responding and taking care of all the people who were asking me to take care of them. And um, what I eventually got to was a point where I had to stop doing that. And a part of how I was able to stop doing that was to learn about directly communicating, which is not being rude, it is not being um, crass, but it's being able to identify your own like needs and wants and limitations mm-hmm. and being able to state those to other people. Yeah. Um, and that has applied to me professionally as much as it has interpersonally. And um, I do think queer and trans people have to do that earlier on in life. Um as a means of self-preservation, being able to really discern um, when a relationship or a connection or a conversation is going in a direction that isn't just uncomfortable, but it's actually harmful, mm-hmm. um, you know, to us and being able to be like really clear with people like, hey, like, I know you care for me. I maybe I even know you love me but when we talk this way it's hard for that to come through and so I'm gonna ask that we change you know this dynamic interesting and so that is something I've learned just like through coming out is how to do that when to make those kinds of asks how to make them um and so I it's a little bit tangential but it is something that I relate you know directly to my experience with like queer and transness and educating about those things. I think we're all treated like educators um, in some type of way, depending on what community you come from, but especially if you come from a community where there's not a lot of LGBTQ people. And so that uh, tool, you know, of directly communicating boundaries, limitations, 
possibilities, I think goes a really long way um, in terms of <laughs> our health and, and wellness. That's super so that's, interesting. That's one thing. <laughs> Have you found that you mostly need to communicate boundaries with Christians who are asking you a whole bunch of theological questions or getting you to um, explain or like... No, it's everybody. Know? Really? Yeah, it it's pretty much across the board because I think, especially around transness, mm-hmm. um, it you know in the media, progressive that was going to be or my conservative. Second question. <laughs> yeah, we're, we're kind of treated as like an emergency. We're mm-hmm. we're treated as a crisis um, to the extent that people can feel compassion for trans communities. It's like through the lens of pity. Mm-hmm. And there's a way I believe that like the messaging around transness teaches people like, oh, like we're so complicated. You can't understand us. And so then everybody, religious or not, um, is socialized to have this kind of um, irreverent curiosity about us. Mm-hmm. And and so I have to be really clear with people about um what I feel comfortable talking about. And sometimes because I am generally pretty good, like around trans topics and even my own journey, I will tell people like, hey, I'm going to answer this question. But before I do that, I'm going to tell you why you should not ask trans people that. Um, And I want you to think about that before I respond. So we're going to have a little mini conversation before I answer the question that you've asked me, if that's okay. Yeah. And they usually respond well to that. Um, I want to share another thing I've learned, Please. Um, which is different from that. Um, and it's that um, I used to say this like tongue in cheek to like cisgender heterosexual friends of mine, just as like a cute thing to say, but I actually believe it. And it's this, um, the opposite of heterosexuality is not queerness. Uh, The opposite of heterosexuality is freedom. And I think it's so easy for LGBTQ people, especially if like you've had that, those identities suppressed or repressed in any kind of way for any kind of reason, um, to begin to understand themselves in like a really static way. so if it costs you so much to come out as gay um, and you've worked really hard um, to accept and learn to love that about yourself, I think it makes it really hard to really be open to any other possible shifts sure. that might happen, you know, in, in your orientation or in your gender, in um, what way it makes sense for you to be living your life and when we close ourselves off, you know, to those possibilities, I think that we lose something, you know, and and there's a way that we never quite, um, you know, the phrase that I use time and time again is come be at home with ourselves. Um, There's a, a kind of permission I think we take away from ourselves when we've had to fight so hard um, to be who we are. Um, it can kind of prevent us from becoming like who we can, you know, be. Um, 
because we start to look at identity as so fixed, yeah. you know, as one thing, um, playing one note. And I just, I think one of the best shifts I was able to make was, was like through my, like understanding my gender and gender identity, um, was that my, my history is not my destiny. Um, and, uh, a piece of advice a close friend of mine gave me, um, when I was feeling, frankly, like very afraid about what gender, you know, possibilities might exist for me. Um, and he said, you know, I don't think this is about finding a new box to put yourself in. It's not about the container. Um, it's not about the label or like the identity you take on. It's about learning to love yourself, you know, in a more whole and, and full way. Mm -hmm. Um, and if a label is helpful, try it on. Um, but if it's not, you don't owe that, you know, to anyone. And frankly, you probably don't even need it. Mm -hmm. Um, and I've taken that and ran with it. Um, and it, it's still something I apply, you know, to myself today is um, trying to maintain, you know, curiosity as a way for like making space for myself, making space for others and letting them, you know, try things on and explore and um, figure things out, you know, what it, what it means to be here, you know, to be present, to show up. Um, for yourself and therefore be able to show up for other people. I think that, um, yeah, the letting ourselves be like dynamic, you know, changing, evolving people is so um, key, I think, in lifelong learning and growth and healing. And so, yeah, yeah that's I another that's, little, little note. That's Ooh. beautiful. And I think I just talked about this in the, the last episode that I recorded, but I feel like the younger generations seem to be pushing towards not labeling as much and not boxing in as much and not, yeah, not labeling. And I feel like there's a lot of freedom in that. Yeah, I, I am so curious to see kind of how all this shakes out in the next few years. Mm -hmm. um, but I, I do think we are in a time like where identity matters more to us, at least like in the US, right? I do think identity is a very like geographically specific, like explicit exploration. Um, but I do wonder like, how will that change? How mm -hmm. will that shift? Like the way that we think about ourselves, the way that we think about each other and um how will that inform like the way that we behave i like words i don't i wouldn't <laughs> it feels wrong to say i like labels but i do think the words um help us find each other mm. they help us um, access resources they help us like get the care we need sure like we can start like building a world where that doesn't have to be true but mm -hmm. that is the world we live in right now and so mm -hmm. um i know for me um i don't know let, let's take the example of like finding a mental health therapist 
Um, I want to see somebody who either themselves like identifies as queer and trans or the like main thrust of their client base are people who are like living lives more similar to mine than not. Mm -hmm. um, and that for me means they are queer and trans and at, at least one of the two, if not both. Um, I, and so that the, the labels are helpful in that way, right? Sure. Like finding your people and finding who's going to be able to offer um, something more closely related to your experiences and um, are facing similar barriers to you. I think that's the other thing is that when you're a part of, you know, these kinds of communities, that there's a real um, beautiful mutual aid, you know, part of what it means to gather and to get support. And I, that's another reason, I can't believe I'm out here being like a labels apologist, but um, <laughs> I, there's a relationship between like labels and visibility. I guess that's what I'm trying to totally illuminate. And, and that's something that is important, at least for right now, yeah. um, to, to still be able to have. Right, exactly. Because labels can definitely be helpful, absolutely. And having a lack of labels can mean freedom. Yeah, wow, that's a really good point. I, because I, I think historically, you know, for many people, a lack of labels um, meant violence. Um, psychologically or otherwise if right. you can't can be really I mean think about my childhood like in that gray space yes like I so because where there is invisibility um we fill in the gaps right and I personally as a child um ascribed a judgment you know to that visibility and because yeah. I did not see anybody like me I didn't know anybody like me I didn't have words to talk about myself or what was going on for me what I filled in that blank was this is bad I'm a freak I'm a monster something is wrong with me and it needs to be fixed mm -hmm. and I don't think the absence of labels has to be that but I do think for a lot of people it was right maybe the ways that labels can find people and can like kind of force them in a corner um, and into that kind of static way of thinking about themselves I mentioned earlier it they're not helpful but as like I don't know uh, resource guides they, I guess labels are morally neutral it's like how they function exactly. that can be mm -hmm. limiting or like an opportunity right yeah it's sort of like labels are a social construct like gender is a social construct so right. <laughs> you can use them to your advantage or your disadvantage and they can be something that holds you back or they can be something that frees you mm. yeah <laughs> what else what else are we gonna, here, here, we're gonna dig into <laughs> Oh, what else have you learned since coming out? Mm. For me, so I think on the whole, the whole label idea, um, when I first came out, I think it was, it was default assumed that I was coming out as a lesbian 
because there weren't so many choices 10 years ago and there weren't so many things that were talked about 10 years ago and especially coming out in a christian environment and in an evangelical environment like are you going to fight so hard against everything that you've learned and believed to come out as bi is is that really mm. the mm-hmm. the hill you're gonna die on or are you gonna yeah. are you gonna go like <laughs> like full lesbian <laughs> yeah but what if along the way you feel like lesbian isn't quite um, true to your experiences so what if you want to have more flexibility what if you want to have more freedom what if you want right. to be just queer what if you are pan? What if you are bi? Like, all of these things are valid. So, people like to assume that because I'm not straight and because of how I like to wear my hair or how I dress in jeans and t-shirts that I'm I'm a lesbian. And I don't, I don't correct them, you know, if they call me that. But um, I'm like, I identify as queer. Because I feel like it gives the most flexibility to my life, the most freedom to my life and right. to my experiences and to my expressions, whatever, whoever I want to love, whatever I want to, whatever I want to be, it's going to be queer. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, hell yeah. Um, I love that. Yeah. Personally. Um yeah, I, I think you talk like the the hair and the dress, like that's something that I think a lot about is um how we express ourselves is related, you know, to these conversations and what we're comfortable with and what we're not. And uh, um something I think that I have also learned over the years and was really hard for me at first was, you know, when we talk about transgender experiences and we talk and I'll and I talk about my own um sometimes people ask me like essentially like some version of have you quote unquote fully transitioned Mm. and I (laughs) always follow up by asking them if they could ask that question in a different way because Mm. I'm not clear about what they mean by have I fully transitioned and I think it's in part because people still have this like very binary way of thinking about gender, even if they're really supportive and inclusive. And so in their minds, like fully transitioning is directly related to medical care and it's directly related to like surgical, like pursuing gender affirming surgical care. Right. And um, that is just not true yeah. for a lot of trans people um even if it's not it might not be true right now but it also was definitely not true in antiquity and we've been here for a very long time and there are people today who will never move like in that direction and it's things like their hair and their clothes that will always be uh communicating you know first and foremost, like who they are and how it makes sense for them to show up communally. Um, And I think, I wish I would have known that kind of earlier on that um, the way like body modification 
um, is presented again, like in the trans discourse is often related um, to gender dysphoria, Mm -hmm. which is like a DSM-5 anxiety condition. Um, But I actually think that it doesn't have to be that to be medically necessary. And, you know, the way that conservative rhetoric tries to frame this is like, you are um, hurting your body. You are, they'll use words like chopping up, you know, and things that are really salacious and inflammatory. Um, But this idea that any kind of change you would pursue, any kind of way you would um, express yourself, you know, in a more masculine or like a more feminine way um, is a commentary on like hating your body or hating yourself or, you know, some of the language trans people of old, you know, would use as experiencing being trapped um, in a quote unquote wrong body. And that can be true for people. That might be the way they talk about themselves and their experience, but it is not like the trans TM um, experience. And for me, um, in order to really be healthy, um, to be whole, to feel good and to feel at home in this body I live in, my like goal, again, quote unquote, um, <laughs> the results I was looking for was just to be able to stand in the mirror and recognize myself. And I think that that gets lost on people because it's so easy to take that for granted. Um, and I'm curious, like for you, uh, you know, was there a time where like you kept your hair longer or dressed in a way that fit in more to like normative kind of femininity in whatever environment you were in? Um, and was like the hair cutting, um, a freeing experience for that reason, you know, or was it kind of like, (laughs) I don't know, anticlimactic. I'm, I'm curious. Yeah. So the first time I cut my hair short was, uh, I mean, I was a tomboy growing up. So I was, I had my hair short in like second grade and third grade and fourth grade. Um, and I would would keep getting sometimes in class I would get mistaken for being a boy and like especially with a substitute teacher um and I would get really embarrassed (laughs) if somebody (laughs) thought I was a boy um most of the time that didn't happen but then around the transition from sixth grade to seventh grade is when I decided that I was going to be more girly and um, try and fit in more with the the stereotypes of what it looked like to be a girl. So had some very unfortunate bangs. Um, but I always <laughs> liked... <laughs> so I was, yeah, I had long hair for years. And then when I got to college... It was more more people in the media, more women in the media were cutting their hair short. And so it started feeling more socially acceptable. And so I chopped my hair off again. Mm-hmm. Um, 
and it was great. You know, everyone thought it was cute. Um, it was still a little edgy. It was still a little, a little abnormal, but more, more socially accepted. So the first time that I cut my hair as an adult, I was still identifying as straight and I still genuinely believed that I was straight. And there was part of me that was worried that by having this short haircut that people were going to identify me as a lesbian, not straight, whatever. Um, which internally was terrifying because some part of me knew that I wasn't straight. <laughs> but I hadn't gotten mm-hmm. to the point of, of accepting that yet or really, really identifying it. Um, so keeping my hair long was a way of was a way of keeping people's questions and assumptions about me uh, at bay. And yeah. if I had kept my hair short for as long as I wanted to, like without any worry about what anybody thought about me, then I mean I might have kept my hair short longer than it was, but. I like mm-hmm. I like having different lengths of hair. Like I like being able to love whoever I want to love. If I want yeah. long hair, I'm going to have long hair. If I want short hair, I'm going to have short hair. It's part of why I shaved my head last summer because I had never done it and I felt like it mm. was something that I needed to experience and know that it wasn't going to shake like I finally got into the place where my hair is not going to shake my identity my hair the way I dress is not going to change who I am you know I can have short hair and I can love a woman I can have short hair and I can love a man I can have short hair and I can love anybody that I want um I can have long hair and be the same (laughs) you know it doesn't matter right right um so it, it has been a process of being confident in who I am, regardless of right. how I dress or appear to the world. There was a long time when I was like, I'm not going to have short hair because I don't want people to be like, I don't want to be the trope. I don't want to be the cliche. You know, Sam, who was the tomboy with the short mm-hmm. hair who likes girls. Oh, <laughs> so when I realized that, I wasn't straight. I was really <laughs> mad at myself because I was like, why do I have to be the cliche? But now I just embrace it. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Uh, well, I like you. I like your hair. I'm Thank glad you. all these things have yeah, finally led come to this together. point. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. It's funny. I, you know, noticed that when I would go back home to Florida, um, since having been, you know, on testosterone and my appearance changing, every time I would visit, I would shave my face and be as like clean shaven as possible. And I would do that. So I would look the most like who people from my hometown remembered me to be. There was something really important to me like through my transition about being cohesive and even I like having facial hair, but I would shave it all off for people at home under the pretense that it made them more comfortable for me to look more like Mm -hmm. myself before testosterone. And it was always really stressful 
for me, like leading up to those trips back home. And it, during my visits, I would love to see people, but I found myself like physically uncomfortable and I couldn't put my finger on it. And then about a year ago, I realized that that was still a concession I was making every time I went home. And so my last visit, I made a choice to not shave. Um, and I know like that little thing, right? It's just, it's very just appearance-based, but um, the psychological and like the emotional part of that made such a difference for me to show up how I like to show up not how I'm expected or not how would make other people allegedly like more comfortable uh, felt so good to me. And I found I had no resentments um, right. after that trip toward people, which is so unfair that I had been doing that previously. But um, just by making like that um compromise every time I went home right. um I was creating a situation where I could only be mad at people for something they didn't even realize right. that I felt like they were asking me to do so mm -hmm. um yeah that it, I you think about like the facial hair yes the politics of hair it it's true I think kind of across gender and it's so interesting to me how that looks and feels and plays out um, regionally. Yeah. Um, I don't want you know gendered meaning to be attached to our hair the way mm -hmm. that it is, but mm -hmm. that that is the unfortunate reality I think in so many places. Um, so that is like as I move through the world as a trans person, that is something I think about, and it, it's related to to how I get treated. I do think that there's something about um, facial hair and masculinity mm -hmm. that creates a situation where I am physically safer mm -hmm. with facial hair, you know, in being like red as like cis man mm -hmm. passing um, than before. And that, yeah, is a something that I think about and kind of grapple with all the time that I again I like having facial hair but there's like a privilege that comes with it that mm -hmm. um I'm just thinking about it. it's something that's on my mind right right yeah yeah well we could have many conversations about many more things <laughs> we're um, at time the time yeah, has come <laughs> I have to go unfortunately but Thank you so much for coming on, Miles. I love talking to you every time I get to talk to you, which isn't often enough in my in my opinion. Um, any any final words as as we go, especially something maybe you wish people understood. Mm. Mm, I'm gonna tie this into a note that I would offer to my younger self. Yeah, um, and that is that. Hiding who you are, erasing who you are, pretending to be something that you're not. None of these things ultimately serve the people that you love. Mm. I, I did that for so long, wanting to make other people more comfortable, wanting them um, to, to reduce stress for them, to reduce confusion for them. I did that because I thought 
it was best for them. I did that as like what I, I thought was an act of love, but I, I don't believe that anymore. And I think the most loving thing we can do for people in our lives is um, be honest about who we are and willing to believe that that's, that's the greatest gift like we can give to other people is that we, we share the truth of ourselves with them and live into that because anything short of it um, is a lie. And that's yeah, that's it. <laughs> Thank you. You heard it, folks. All you listeners, do not hide who you are. Do not hide your light under a bushel. Let it shine. Yeah. Well, I had a fun time. Yes. Thank you for inviting me. And I hope that the rest of your interviews are just a delight. Bye. 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 Oh, 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 oh,